G'day guys, welcome back to Going Deep with Brit English. Today we're joined with Georgia Rose. Hello. <laughs> Thank you for coming down. How did this line of work first unfold for you? Somatic therapy. Yeah. Um, well, actually I got into it because I was looking for ways to heal my own trauma mm. and what I was doing wasn't working. So I called a somatic therapist that I'd heard of years before, but mm. never followed through with it. And their name just kind of popped into my mind. And when I went and saw her for a session and um, she said to me, you know, like, knowing that I was already a Tantra practitioner, she said, I think this would be a really good compliment to the work that you're already doing because the session blew my mind. Mm. And there happened to be a training coming up with her mentor. Um, so I went ahead and signed up straight away for the training. Yeah, wow. so it was inspired through my own healing. Um, but then I got so much out of it that I wanted to yeah. then be able to share that with other people. Okay, awesome. Yeah. How does it actually work? Like, what do you expect when you're going into a session for thematic, somatic therapy release? Uh, well, it could look a lot of different ways depending on the practitioner and also mm. depending on the intention of the client. But basically, you would have a chat with the practitioner about whatever's going on for you. So obviously, mm. you'd have some kind of intention why you would want to explore somatic therapy, whether there's a challenge or a trauma or something that you feel you can't quite shift in your life or mm. a difficulty or something you want support around. And then when there is a clear intention, then usually, I mean, I'll just speak for my self, then I know where to start guiding the session. And rather than just keeping it more cognitive and mental based where we're talking about stuff, I would also be noticing the client's body language and like, do you notice that you just did this or that your leg is now twitching or kind of bringing their awareness to how their body is speaking mm. while they are verbally speaking. And a lot of the time people say, oh no, I had no idea that I was doing that. Um, but then we usually will take the exploration into the body. So it would be looking at noticing posture, movement, sensation, emotion, and allowing some deeper processing to happen around what people are experiencing or talking about, where usually we'll discuss what we're consciously aware of, but mm. our body tends to reveal what we're not conscious of. So it's a gateway into unconscious exploration, like yeah. going beneath the tip of the iceberg, where a lot of like the really, really significant realizations and change will usually happen. Amazing. Now yeah. I get it. Yeah, yeah. I got a book in a session. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, when, it, when it comes to attachment styles, which I saw that you were doing a few videos of that on it, mm -hmm. how do you find your attachment style and what are, they, what are the options? Like what kind of attachment styles do you see out there mm -hmm. with people? So there's a really cool quiz that I like to recommend to people mm. by Diane Poole Heller, who's a, an expert in attachment theory. And you just go through and answer the questions as best you can, and it'll give you a little result at the end. That's one way that yeah. I like to refer to people to find out what their attachment style okay, is. Cool. Um, but there's also some sort of indicators or typical sort of traits or feelings that people would have depending on which attachment style they experience. Mm. And we're not just, most people don't just have one attachment style. There will okay. be multiple different ways that they attach depending on circumstance, person and environment. So mm. as well as life stage. Okay. So um, did that answer your question? I it kind of, kind of did because like I, I fluctuate myself between anxious attachment style yeah. and then avoidant. Yeah. And I saw your post about disorganized attachment. I'm like, that sounds more like me. Uh-huh. You know, because it's like sort of jumping between the two. Yeah. Which is quite interesting. 
Mm. But is there a difference between disorganized attachment style and the anxious and avoidant? Or yes. how does disorganized come into play? So that's a really good question because a lot of people think that they're disorganized because they experience anxious and avoidant tendencies. Um, so there is a key factor that differentiates the two. So they may look kind of similar, fluctuating between anxious and avoidant, which mm. is the sort of push-pull, come here, go away, sort of, yeah. I want to be close to you, but now that you're here, I want you to back off and I need my space and freedom. So some people will experience that fluctuation. Um, but dis disorganized attachment is, um, so if I backtrack a little bit, can I give a little rundown of yeah, absolutely. anxious, yeah, avoidant, yeah. and then disorganized to make this make more sense? Mm. So with anxious attachment, someone will be preoccupied with wanting to get closer to a certain individual, whether that's a, a relative, friend, or partner, or whoever mm. it is. And there's a preoccupation with the other person and how do I need to be in order to win your approval? And there's this sort of sense of anxiety. Are we connected? Do they like me? There's a real hypervigilance around the possibility of rejection and mm. trying to adapt themselves, like becoming like a chameleon to avoid rejection and to win love in some way. Um, so that's kind of like a little nutshell of what, I mean, I could talk about it for the whole podcast, but mm. um, that's like a little nutshell, some key qualities. Mm. Then avoidant attachment would be more so focused on maintaining their own space, freedom and independence. So when connection comes close, there's usually a fear of this is, I'm, I'm going to lose my independence or I'm going to lose my sense of self. I'm going to lose myself. So I need to put a wall up between me and you so that I can stay connected to me. And there's more focus on themselves, whereas mm. anxious are more other focused. Were you going to say something then? No, no, okay. no. I was checking the the batteries on my mic, that's all. Oh, okay. I do that every now and then, so. Okay, cool, no worries. Um, so you can flip between these two mm. and a lot of people will be like, oh, you know, how come when I want someone, they don't want me? Mm. Or when someone wants me, I'm not interested in them. And that's kind of typical of those yeah. attachment styles. So with anxious, you've got a fear of rejection. With avoidant, you've got more so a fear of loss of freedom or loss of independence. Um, and with disorganized attachment, usually they will experience both where there's a desperation to get closer, but also a desperation to get away. Mm. And the tendency is that they will not just be afraid of rejection and intimacy, but there can be a fear of the person themselves that they're connected with. Okay. So disorganized attachment typically comes about when you've got a caregiver that is frightening and it's our instinctive drive to attach, to stay connected, but it's like, I need to be close to you, but you're also a threat. Mm. So then usually they'll experience that with other people. I want to, I really want to be close to you, but I'm also terrified of you. Mm. Also terrified of rejection and intimacy, but you're also a threat to me. Does that? That makes a lot that of sense, sense, yeah. Because I've been experiencing that my whole life. I thought it was just my ego in the beginning, mm. sort of wanting to win validation, getting validation, like, yeah, next. But maybe it was an anxious and avoidant attachment style. Possibly. Or my ego, or both. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, but yeah. That's very interesting. Mm. Mm. Okay. Mm. There's another one I want to touch you about, and that is um, building security and intimacy in a relationship. 
There's a two-part question. Yes. Um, why do people stay in relationships that are obviously toxic and abusive? Yes. And how can they go about building security and intimacy within that or healing that relationship? Within a toxic or abusive relationship? Yeah, it was a bit of a two-part question, but mm. okay, you can so ask one first and the other if you want. Yeah, so let's <laughs> go with the first one. So why is it that people stay in toxic or abusive relationships? Mm. So there's a couple of reasons for this. Um, I mean, it's a pretty massive topic, but yeah. typically speaking, people will be drawn towards toxic or abusive relationships because there's some sort of familiarity to relationships that they've had in their developmental years when they're growing up. Mm. So if you have a caregiver or a sibling or someone quite close and influential to you in your childhood years, then that influences the associations that we have around love, connection, relationship, and also what we deserve. So when people get into, you know, typically we'll be drawn towards relationships that are familiar to us because that's what we know. So then getting into toxic or abusive relationships, it's like, ah, oh, this feels familiar. Mm. Even though it's uncomfortable and frightening, it's also the nervous system is used to it. Yeah. And part of experiencing that also impacts a sense of self-worth and what we think we deserve, which is, you know, that kind of toxic or abusive treatment. Mm. So people stay in it because they're yeah. used to it and maybe don't think that they deserve any better or if those kind of relationships or treatment were normalized then they don't realize that it's not okay or not acceptable mm. um, and sometimes the you know they'll be worn down so much through that relationship that the self-worth continues to deteriorate and then mm. they keep staying and for others it can be really frightening to get out of an abusive relationship particularly if the other person is threatening them if they think to leave. And that yeah. can happen in a lot of abusive dynamics. It's like, wow. I'll hurt myself if you leave me. So then they feel mm. like they don't have a choice That's to like get that. out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. is those belief systems, especially the unworthiness and um, also thinking that they deserve this certain situation, mm -hmm. is that from the emotional memory stored in the body? Or is it like a thought pattern? Or is it both? Is it is it the mm -hmm. same thing, the stored memory in the body being a thought pattern and belief system? Mm -hmm. or are there two separate things? I think that it can be a bit of both. Mm. So we have stored memory in our body that is beyond our conscious understanding. Mm. So, you know, for example, in our very, very early developmental years, so as infants, before our prefrontal cognitive, you know, our prefrontal cortex is developed. Yeah. We don't have belief systems or thoughts necessarily. It's all, oops, I just touched my mic. That's okay. it's, it's all, um, it's all body-based, it's all mm. somatic. So there's a lot of imprints that we receive which are beyond, completely beyond the mind and are stored in the body. Mm. Then as we're developing and we get older and our cognitive mind develops and, and become, you know, comes online, then how we feel and our sensation and experience starts to be connected with our belief systems and what we think and how we make sense of our reality. Wow. So it could be the two together or sometimes one and sometimes the other. Wow. Yeah. So they're working together against us. <laughs> well. <laughs> or working for us, right? Well, it's kind of, it's interesting. It's sort of like old software that doesn't, get updated until mm. we do our, our inner work so yeah yeah what are some practices that you live by that you recommend strongly to people that 
are experiencing a pattern in their life that they don't like and they want to break out of it mm-hmm. to really move beyond that belief system or beyond that old software. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that one of the big game changers for me is looking beyond what you think you know. So a lot of the time people try to understand something by analysing, thinking about it, figuring it out and searching in their conscious knowing or conscious understanding for something but usually those blocks or blind spots are in our unconscious. So it's kind of like if I lose my car keys at night and there's a big dark space and there's one lamppost and light is shining down on the ground. I'm looking for my keys just in that spot. Why can't I find them? They must be here, you know. Mm. I, I'm looking and they're not here, but I know that I dropped them here. But the keys are out, un, you know, where the light isn't touching. It's in out shadow. in the dark space, in the mm. shadow. So a lot of the time where there's something, it's like you feel like you're hitting your head against the wall again and again. Why can't I figure this out? Why can't I change it? Why does this keep happening? I feel like I'm stuck in a loop on a hamster wheel. It's like a lot of the time what you need to see, feel, hear or experience to shift that is not underneath the lamp. It's out in the dark spots in the unconscious. And that's why I love somatic work because our body is such a powerful gateway into the unconscious rather Mm. than just thinking about it and trying to analyse it cognitively. That's helpful too, but I think both need to happen together in a lot of circumstances. Mm. Beautiful. I love the analogy, by the way. That Mm. really puts a picture in my mind. Coming to your work with the Temple Nights and all the somatic therapy and the amazing things you do, I've been to a few of your workshops and they're just awesome, like nothing like it I've ever experienced. And they're really beautiful how you connect people together like that. But what were some obstacles you had to overcome in becoming the woman you are today and doing that kind of work? Did you at one time have like a mediocre nine to five and then you evolved into it or were you straight into it? I've never worked nine to five. Oh, really? Yeah. Good job. I never wanted to. I would yeah. say like I worked, I mean, I worked in IGA in high school, yeah, four till eight. <laughs> I didn't do nine to five, but I've done four to eight. eight. <laughs> That's enough. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and then I travelled a lot, and then I studied, and I've had casual jobs. Um, but from from the age of well, yeah, I've never worked nine to five. Mm. Um, I would. That's a whole other thing to talk about my work history, but. Yeah. That's a yeah. We'll leave that for now. It's an interesting one. We'll say that for another time. Um, (laughs) But I have, I think I've kind of known in there somewhere like there's got to be more than just this. And how much time we spend working, I don't want to spend that amount of time in my life doing something that Mm. I'm not juiced up by and lit up by, and you know gives me that like yes to get out of bed in the Mm. morning. So. Um, I suppose there wasn't a big transition in terms of habitual work routine into what I'm doing now. Um, But probably the biggest barrier or block or thing that I had to overcome was, I guess, feeling like good enough to do it, you know, Mm. kind of, oh, who would want to come to a workshop by me? Or is this, is this idea, you know, will people like this? Is this going to land well? Is this going to, will this be useful? Will it be supportive? Are people going to enjoy it? And, um, yeah, I guess some of those self-limitations around my own capability or good enoughness to yeah. to facilitate what I do. Yeah. yeah. And um, how did you get over that? Just practice. Like I just mm. started at the beginning doing free workshops um, because, again, that 
within a thing. I didn't think that I didn't know if I had enough value to charge for mm. it. So I started doing stuff for free and then made really low ticket, um, okay. you know, fees to begin with. And then I noticed like, wow, okay, people are actually getting a lot out of this. So I guess slowly in time with experience, mm. um, my confidence built and, um, yeah, it was just a gradual sort of expansion into that. Beautiful. Yeah. Very mm. organic, natural expansion, hey? Yeah. And people just getting into relationships. What are some like questions they should be asking or things you should look out for like red flags and green flags and things like that? Or do you believe in that notion of red flags and green flags? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Um, I have a little laugh sometimes because some people will just have someone do something that they don't like or they're not getting what they want they're not getting their way and that yeah, inner yeah. child has a tanty oh that's such a red flag it's like it's not a red flag you're just not getting your way yeah. so i think red flags are thrown around like you know yeah. here there and everywhere now yes. and everyone's a narcissist and we're you yeah. know it's like oh so I think that it's dished out too readily, these yeah. red flags. And I think it's important to acknowledge that everyone's probably got some level of red flag or at least, mm. you know, orange flag. We've all got our shit. And yeah. if, if you aren't, if you're so focused on everyone else's red flags, I reckon that's a red flag for yourself. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there's varying degrees of, you know, I, I would say there's probably orange flags, which mm. are like, okay, here's something that, is not in relationship this is not this behavior is not going to work for me this is mm. not okay for me i'm not red flagging you because you're just human and this yeah. is something that you know many of us do mm. but this is on the on the edge here where okay. something's going to have to shift in order for this to relation relationship to work mm. and you know there are other things that i think are red flags like you know abusive kind of behaviors yeah. or things like someone who belittles humiliates criticizes you who raises their voice calls you bad names who is um deflective and takes very little or little to no accountability or responsibility in a relationship mm. um someone who is manipulative or controlling and there's a lot of like overtly controlling behaviors that people have and coercively controlling behaviors that are a bit trickier to spot mm. like gaslighting and kind of sneaky things that eventually eat away at someone's sense of self i've got a whole list of, of orange red, flags. red flags or red flags that i think are regardless of relationship dynamic red flags yeah. so um and by red flag you mean as in like break it off or like assert your boundaries in a very strong way yeah red flags as in this behavior or treatment mm. under no circumstance is that ever appropriate mm. in you know in yeah. my perspective but there's also um you know there's been studies done around this of mm. what groups of psychologists and relationship therapists can agree upon across the field are absolute no-nos in relationship. Yeah. And that's, yeah, about the abusive, controlling, manipulative kind of behaviors yeah. that people do. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Beautiful. I'll have to get that list. Yeah, I can send it to you. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to see that. Um, I should probably post it in the comments of this. For sure. Um, what do you think are the causes of procrastination and people not doing what they know they're supposed to do? Mm. That's a good one. I think one of the main causes of procrastination or underlying that is actually a fear of failure. So mm. it's like, if I give this a go, I might not get it right or I might fail. Therefore, my instinct in me is telling me not to do it. Mm. So, you know, trying anything new or even stuff that you've done before, 
I think, yeah, a big underlying component of that is fear of failure. Mm. Wow. And is it in the realization of that, that I'm afraid to fail, is that, that will stop the procrastination? Or is there a method to really find out that, how do you realize that fear and how do you move beyond it? Have you had you experiences with this before? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it just depends on what, you know, everyone's had their own unique experience around mm. failure versus success and how they were treated as, you know, growing up for making mistakes or mm. some people feel terrified of making mistakes and getting things wrong. So they feel yeah. crippled with procrastination if they want to try to do something. And it's like this paralysis of yeah. the head is telling them, do this, you've got to do this. It's, mm. you know, it'll take you five minutes. It's super simple. Just go, go, go. And the body is like paralyzed yeah. going, if I... If I mess that up, you know, mm. I'm going to be punished in some way. They may not realize that that's what's going on underneath, yeah. but that's a very common pattern for people to experience. For mm. other people, it's much milder than that. Yeah. But it still kind of halts them or freezes them in that uh, inability to, to step forward and to take action. Mm. Sometimes you can override that response if you can engage your willpower enough to yeah. go, do you know what? for the next 20 minutes, I'm just going to do that workout or I'm just going to get started on that assignment or whatever it is and kind mm. of chunk it out like one little step at a time and sort of bringing the conscious mind in to help to override that yeah. that uh, paralysis or that procrastination. Just powering through it. Yeah, sometimes you, know, sometimes you can override that for other mm. people, no matter how much will they exert. It yeah. just, they can't, they can't do it. And so what they would need to do is have a look at what is actually going on underneath that mm. and exploring, okay, what sensations do I notice in my body? Are there any thoughts that come up? Are there any emotions that come up? If I imagine taking one step forward and, and starting that task, how do I feel? Some people will feel very anxious. Some people mm. will suddenly feel like so exhausted and shut oh, down. Wow. And so you, Underneath that is a lot of activation or stress or unresolved emotion or tension of some kind that oh. you can process through depending on what, you know, that person's unique kind of mm. experience. Um, and sometimes just knowing it and having awareness around it can help just to shift it. It's like, yeah. oh, okay. Okay, so if I make a mistake, what's the worst possible case scenario? It'll actually be okay. And then the body goes, mm. oh. Like Maybe exploring the worst case scenario and knowing that it's not a big deal. Well, sometimes that can be because the, yeah. the brain or the nervous system is going, we might die, you know, mm. in worst case scenario. Yeah. But when you can kind of get mindful or enough awareness around it to go, mm. the worst possible thing is I just have to start again or, you know, I lose you know, for some like I lose 10 grand investment. I don't know, depending mm. on what Fair it enough, is. <laughs> yeah. You'll survive. Yeah, right. you'll be okay. Well, so procrastination is the big one. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to processing emotions, um, I saw a video of yours about getting rid of emotions. Mm -hmm. how, how, what is the correct way to process an emotion when something is being felt to really feel it and move through it mm -hmm. rather than trying to suppress or get rid of it? Yeah, so I would say that trying to get rid of your emotions is a form of invalidation. Mm. And if you, you know, if you imagine that a child comes over here and they're like, oh, I just, you know, I hurt my knee, it's really sore or, you know, whatever it is and having yeah. a bit of a cry. If I go, oh God, would you just go away? Like I'm trying to get rid yeah. of their sadness or their experience. Mm. You know, I use that example to kind of... Emotional damage. Well, it's just kind of creating that comparison if we think about 
someone else or something else, especially a child, is yeah. usually for most people easier to have compassion for. Mm. So if I dismiss that little one or disregard them or invalidate them or tell them just to go away, I'm like, oh, I can't be bothered dealing with this. Yeah they're going to feel, you know, that sense of emotion is going to get so much stronger because it's like, I'm not being heard. Now I've got to scream, you know, or whatever it is, it, it's going to amplify usually. Whereas if I go, oh, sweetheart, you know, did that happen? Come here, you tell me about it and I'll give you cuddles and, you know, soothe them in some way. It's like the emotion or the experience that they're having goes, oh, I feel, mm. you know, I feel heard, I feel seen, I'm valid, I'm, I'm okay, you know, I exist. And, mm. and the system can kind of relax and release that. Maybe they have a little cry and then they're like, yeah. let's go play again, you know. Mm. So if you imagine that kind of dynamic playing out externally, a lot yeah. of the time we've got that playing out internally where we will feel something and a lot of our conditioning tells us to try to be happy and okay all of the time because mm. we don't know how to be with our pain, yeah. like f- mostly most people um so it's like okay i'm feeling something uncomfortable there must be something wrong with me how do i get rid of this this isn't okay i'm i'm fucked or you know whatever whatever however our association is to that if we're trying to get rid of that and make it go away it's enforcing that sort of invalidation there's something wrong with me Mm. i'm broken i'm whatever it is and the pain's just going to get stronger and louder yeah Whereas when you're processing emotions, one of the first things that I like to teach people is just normalizing and validating emotional experiences Mm. where you may have heard the saying, what you resist persists. But if you give spaciousness for that to be there and go, oh, you know, sweetheart, fair enough that you're feeling that, you know, Mm. that's totally understandable. And a lot of the time, because our emotional selves typically can be quite irrational Mm. our logical mind doesn't know how to relate to our emotional experience where if we can't think of a reasonable reason to be feeling that way we don't know how to validate it or how to hold it or be Mm. compassionate for it so even if it doesn't make sense if the first thing you start doing is going fair enough yeah fair enough that i'm feeling that way I don't mm. even need to understand it. Doesn't mean to make sense. It's here, so it must, you know, it must be fair enough on some level. Mm. And usually, that can start to create some sense of ease of like, oh, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm yeah. allowed to feel this, and then it passes. And then, you know, we're like mm. this roller coaster of ebbs and flows of all sorts of different feelings. Yeah. So processing emotions, I think, is not trying to get rid of your pain or discomfort so that you'll only ever be happy but it's how to ride those waves with compassion and acceptance for yourself yeah because by virtue of being human we're gonna feel pain it's inevitable we can't Mm. process heal our way out of it but we can learn how to be with that experience yeah that makes a lot of sense because working in mental health meeting people with depression one of the biggest things is when they're feeling depressed or low they start feeling guilty uh-huh. For feeling that way, they yeah. start hating themselves, and they feel like a burden. They keep adding more and more layers of crap on top of the issue. And if they just accepted that it's okay to feel depressed, it's okay in these times to be down. Mm. They can remove that guilt, and then all the other negative emotions stacked on top. So, how, how do people build more intimacy and security in their relationships? Say they want to feel a little bit closer to their partner. Oh, that's go a, to your temple night. But yeah, yeah, come to temple night. Um, that's a good question. I think that the approach towards that would depend on their attachment style. Mm. 
So to build more intimacy with a partner, a lot of the time people with anxious attachment need to learn how to build more intimacy within themselves and mm. co to connect to themselves more deeply because yeah. they're dis disconnecting from self to try to have intimacy with a partner. Mm. But you can't be intimate with someone really and go deep with someone who's not connected to themselves. So someone with anxious attachment needs to reel back their energy a bit from the other person and mm. learn how to connect to their own heart, their own self and to deepen intimacy internally to mm. be able to share that with a partner. And then someone with avoidant attachment would need to learn how to kind of melt or lower the walls a little bit mm. around themselves or their own heart and to lean into, into intimacy with another person. So the anxious mm. one stepping back a little bit. Yeah. Um, the avoidant person would need to learn how to step forward a little bit and to lean into that and to get more vulnerable and reveal themselves a bit more to the other. Um, and same goes, they need to connect to themselves a bit more too because mm. avoidance typically are more emotionally disconnected. So they need, it, need a little bit yeah. of both. Um, but it's then those with disorganized attachment would need to anchor in healthy boundaries and safety and to feel safe enough to be intimate with another person and to lean in towards that and to develop trust. So the mm. how that would look for each of them would depend on where each person's coming from. Um, so it's a yeah. bit of a tricky one to it is, yeah, answer. Absolutely. What could that look like as far as practices for mm. couples? Would it be dancing or? Yeah, don't, I mean, if dancing is something that both people really enjoy, you mm. know, they can find activities that re they really enjoy together. Yeah. But then there's other things that are just so simple, um, like, you know, when you see each other rather than, oh, how was your day? And just lunging into kind of logistics and talking and all of this. It's like taking more moments throughout the day to really be together rather mm. than to kind of engage from their minds together. Normally that feels like a safer place to connect from is like if we kind of stay in the the details and logistics and the this and that and talk about the kids or talk about this or, you know, work or whatever it is. Yeah. Whereas I think relating from the heart can be a bit more vulnerable. So if they, you know, get home from work and they see each other rather than going into debriefing and offloading onto each other, mm. taking a moment just to like look into each other's eyes, you know, and just to hold each other for a moment and breathe and melt into each other's bodies and just really feel like they're connected more so from the heart first. And mm. I feel you, I feel that you're here with me. I can feel your heart, I can see you now we can kind of debrief and have a, a chat about things or taking more moments to kind of hover in the intimate spaces of being together, which mm. might be eye gazing or mm. hugging or slow, gentle touching or having vulnerable, uncomfortable conversations that maybe have been avoided or being more authentic about what is being experienced or requesting for something that they would love to do or explore together mm. or I don't, I don't know there could be so many or it, and if that's yeah. going out dancing or if that's making love or if that's going to the beach or going on a road trip or planning a holiday or maybe that mm. is doing board games I don't know whatever 
each to their own of what yeah, they cool. feel brings them closer together. Um, and I guess the love languages are another good one to mm. explore for people who don't really know what makes them feel more connected. That's a really cool framework to see. I feel more connected to you when we're touching. I feel mm. more connected to you when all the electronics are off and we're just having quality time together. I feel more connected to you when we're doing things together. I feel more connected to you when we're making things and gifting things to each other. So it's good to see like what actually makes you feel connected to your partner mm. and what creates that sense of intimacy. And it could look very different for different people. And some couples will find that they have very different love languages or what makes one person feel closer can be a bit triggering for the other person or mm. doesn't do it for the other person so it's mm. about meeting each other halfway as well if you have yeah. different gateways into that sense of connection or intimacy now one of your workshops uh, was called good girl gone bad <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um i was thinking about the whole idea of like bad and people label things as bad and sometimes they have to like label themselves as bad to do things that are actually healthy so things that have been labeled mm. bad or negative by society people who would do those things which are healthy things mm -hmm. label themselves as bad have you seen uh, that sort of coming in people's sort of self-esteem or their picture of themselves is distorted? Mm, d well, definitely with sexuality, yeah. I think. Um, that's the one that jumps out at me yeah. the strongest. I've, I've noticed that myself to working in mental health is uh, people that are doing things that are actually healthy for them, whether it's sexuality or whether it's screaming to release their emotions. Ah, uh, yeah, And they think yeah. of themselves as lesser or as bad or negative mm. due to the fact that society labels these things or taboos these things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I was going to ask you a question of how do people break through those labels and realize that it is okay and it is healthy to do all these things. Mm. And I thought that maybe um, one of your good girl gone bad was sort of related to that in such a sense. Yeah, it is sort of, yeah, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm following now. So <laughs> the idea behind that was to kind of start cracking open this conditioning that we typically have. Um, I think it's prevalent for most people in Australian culture, I would say, but mm. particularly for women as well, to be good and to please and to be kind and nice, which are all great things, mm. um, but to kind of overextend themselves, to always be giving, to always say yes, you know, but mm. it, it typically ends up being at the detriment to themselves where when they're saying yes to everyone and everything else, they're saying no to themselves mm. and, uh, you know, possibly pouring from an empty cup or building resentment because they're doing all these things or being a way that is not authentic for them to make sure that everyone around them is happy. Mm. Um, so the good girl is kind of like the people pleaser, caretaker, the one that does everything for everybody else and then they mm. put themselves last. And that role can sometimes, you know, it's like praised, oh, look at you, you do everything for everyone else, well done, you're such a good girl, or, you know, yeah. you're, you're so easy, you know, nothing bothers you, you're so great, and it's just like, so chill. well done, but underneath that, yeah. 
you know, there's this part inside that's screaming like, mm. well, what about me? Do I, what do I want? Do I even exist? Like, do I get to put my needs first? And mm. I feel angry about that actually. And I want to have a boundary around that. And that feels wrong for me, but mm. don't have the permission to express that because it's seen as bad. You know, it's yeah. the, the rebel that is not complying with what everyone wants that person to be for everybody else's benefit. So the good girl gone bad was exploring the conditioning that so many of us have around needing to be that good girl mm. and feeling like it is bad to to say no or mm. to have a boundary or to put oneself first or to you know go do you know what actually I've I've overcommitted myself I can't make it to that or to mm. be a bit wild or sexual or angry mm. or um, you know uninhibited where there's kind of what we played with in that workshop was two extremes. We've got mm. the girlfriend, the good girl on one side, yeah. the bad girl on the other side, mm. but you wouldn't, both of those are unhealthy extremes of the polarity. So that if you're kind of stuck in one extreme of doing something, sometimes mm. by going to the other extreme helps you to find the middle point of balance. Absolutely. Because if you try to get the balance, you actually need a bit of that, energy mm. or a bit of that those traits on the other side to be yeah. able to step into that does that it makes perfect make sense? sense yeah i really resonate with that as well because a lot of people that do assert boundaries or sort of do self-care they feel guilty mm -hmm. if they're a bad person for it but actually no that's that's completely healthy to have those things but mm. sometimes they label themselves as being negative or bad just for yeah. asserting themselves yeah which is a bit sad but it's still part of the process to start removing the conditioning and those labels that have been handed down by society or family and that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Yeah, and so I guess breaking out of that, one of the big things is just getting awareness around it mm. to, go, to answer your previous question. Yep. Um, but also I think that when there is conditioning around something being taboo or something being bad, that can actually be healthy in a you know, certain kind of dose of mm. that. Um, oftentimes there will be shame around that. Um, and... So healing or releasing the shame that we have around our feelings, behaviors, desires, mm. um, you know, expressions of self can help to sort of unlock the other side of our being that maybe mm. we don't feel like we're allowed to express. True. Mm. And what do you think shame really is? It's a tough one, but. Well, I think shame, you know, it has its benefits where mm. Um, it sort of helps us to stick to some kind of a moral compass in a sense. Mm. So if I come over to you and I give you a whack, you know, uh, someone might say to me, Georgia, you mm. can't, what did you do that for? That's not okay. And I feel this natural sense of shame mm. that I've been told, you know, to, I've just been told not to do that. Yeah. So, you know, if I usually kids, we get taught this mm. or a child that wants to run out onto a road and it's like, hey, 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 come back here. You, mm. you can't do that. That's not OK. Naturally, they'll feel this sort of sense of shame, but that mm. shame kind of gets imprinted where they remember next time. Oh, that was not that was not all right to do that. So it kind yeah. of it's helpful where societally we learn through shame where the moral compass is yeah. around what is and isn't OK. And that goes for things like how we treat each other, mm. but also how, um, you know, for safety. Like if we didn't feel that, we might be, you know, doing all sorts of things that mm. are going to hurt ourselves or potentially endanger ourselves. Yeah. So it has a place. It's interesting. 
But what also can happen is toxic shame, mm. where we feel a sense of shame that instead of just kind of being that sort of barrier or that boundary around appropriate or inappropriate behaviour that's sort of uh, driven by that sense of shame, yeah. healthy shame, mm. um, we get toxic shame, which is where it becomes internalised as there must be something wrong with me. Yeah. I am bad, not mm. I've just done something bad. It's yeah. like I am inherently bad or wrong mm. and when we carry that kind of shame then it's not healthy yeah that kind of makes sense it's almost like um kids or people who get too much too much shame for what they're doing whether their intention was good or bad whether it was mm -hmm. the example of hitting somebody it could have been just an intention to play and have fun mm -hmm. and when someone says no that's wrong it's like well they may get confused between the activity and am i wrong mm -hmm. and carry that mm -hmm. imprint with them yeah if that makes sense but yeah, definitely. Well, mm. the other, if you go back to sexuality as an example, if a child is, you know, caught masturbating or mm. touching their privates or something. Yeah. And if the parent says, oh, that's disgusting. Yeah. You know, that's a bit different too. That's something that you do in your private space. Yeah. You know, you're allowed to explore that, but, mm. you know, keep that behind, you know, you do that in your bedroom and you get to know yourself with yeah. that. And the, that's, you know, we don't do that in front of each other sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. Um, but if they get shamed, and they might still feel a bit of shame around that, mm. but it's kind of possibly, depends on, a lot of the time if I feel shamed mm. about my sexuality yep. and I would see my child playing with themselves, then I'm then projecting my shame onto them and I'm yeah. going to shame them for what they're doing. Now so you heal this gets, trauma. <laughs> yeah, well then it gets passed down and then yeah. they feel like, oh my God, you know, I'm so embarrassed, mm. I'm humiliated, I'm ashamed that I've done this. Mm. Um, and yeah, then that, that sets a pretty hard yeah. imprint. So a lot of the time, our own unresolved shame can typically get passed on to our yeah. kids, whether that's through what we're doing or how we feel about ourselves or our own emotions or whatever mm. it is. Yeah, it's funny because there's almost like this big machine of like um, religions and society and culture that can just generate so much shame on people. That just, you know, it's like this. Yeah. Oh, God. Anyway. Yeah. That's why it's good to have people like you doing the work you do to help <laughs> like mitigate that. Um, why do people hide from love, do you think? I think that people hide from love, um, again, coming back to the, like a self-worth kind of thing. If I haven't been loved in the ways that I longed for, mm. um, then when love comes my way, it's like, oh, I don't deserve this. I'm not yeah. good enough for this. So I'm going to hide away from it or push it away. Mm. Um, and if we tie this into shame, you know, if I'm not feeling worthy of shame, mm. within that self-worth or unworthiness is shame. Yeah. So shame is also a result of abandonment, rejection and neglect. Mm. So growing up, if I have been abandoned, rejected or neglected in some way, so usually that's the absence of love. Mm. then the result of that usually is a sense of shame. There's something wrong with me that mum or dad isn't loving me or whoever in my life. Mm. So then we carry that imprint and then in relationship... You're holding the stomach. Is that where well, shame, shame is stored? Typically will be, yeah. Okay. A lot of people will feel shame here. Okay. In the stomach or in the solar plexus. Mm. That's interesting because when I do breath work, I get like issues with my stomach. So Ah, interesting. Must have a lot of shame here. <laughs> Possibly. Yeah, but I'm going to yeah. breath work tonight, so we're going to... Get rid of that. Crank that. <laughs> yeah. 
So then if I'm mm. getting into a relationship and someone's wanting to love me, it's mm. like, oh, no, 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 I don't, I don't deserve this. I'm not good enough for this. So mm. I want to push it away. But underneath yeah. that is another don't part that's like, please love me, please love me. And mm. then it's like, oh, no, no, I don't deserve it. Oh, so you're back to the anxious and the avoidant. Possibly, yeah. yeah. Tying into that. So that can be mm. one thing. And the other thing I think why people hide away from love is because to open yourself to love or to receive love means opening your heart. And when mm. you do that, there's a greater risk of rejection or pain. True. If you keep your heart guarded and you're mm. hiding from love, then you're not putting it all out on the table and your risk of being hurt is far less. Yeah. Whereas if you fully open to it and let it in and soak it up, it's like, you know, usually well, what if this goes? What if they leave me? Can I trust this? Yeah. Um, is it real? Do they mean this? Is it genuine? You know, it can bring up all of those associations mm. that we have around love. Yeah. And what happens when we get hurt from love, which is not love hurting you, but yeah. the absence of love or the behavior of the person that hurts. Yeah, or even like your idea of love at the time. Because mm -hmm. sometimes I was thinking that like my idea of love would be a woman loving me, but in actual fact it could be me loving her and also me loving myself and just feeling love in general. Mm. Um, but back to my original question was, um, well, a new question, sorry. When it comes to opening the heart, um, what are some practices and also ideas and concepts we can do to open our heart more, yeah. to be able to be more secure in relationships, whether we get, whether we go through a breakup or not, or whether we want to um, keep ourselves safe from the idea of losing love, mm. but also having that love within ourselves to be able to hold ourselves through anything. Um, okay, so can we break that down to one? one yeah, I'm a bit confused in that question myself, but. I really want to know some activities to open the heart yep. and to feel safe with our heart open, regardless mm. of circumstances. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> it shouldn't be easy, but yeah. Well, some, well, I'll start with the first bit. Some practices that you can do to, opening the, to open the heart. Yep. You know, like yoga is an awesome practice to have where there's physical movements to open the heart physically and energetically. And mm. some people you notice you know, people who walk around sort of like this and their their shoulders are sort of hunched in, the back sort of caved in. Yeah. And, you know, that posture in itself is very, it's protecting and closing yeah. in the heart. So there are things that you can do with your physical mm. body and posture to, you know, bring the shoulders back a little bit and just feel how, how can I open my chest or my heart mm, space posture. physically and, yeah. and explore that. And then other things that you can do are, to just simple kind of starting practices are to start to feel the sensation in your heart or in your mm. chest. So if you sort of tune into what you notice in terms of physical sensation in that area, do you feel numb or disconnected from it? Do you feel heat or tingling or like attention or heaviness or is mm. there an ache there or what kind of sensations do you notice in your heart? And sometimes, you know, underneath some of the more uncomfortable sensations are usually unresolved emotions that are mm. sitting there. And naturally, when we feel our pain, we want to contract against it. So starting to be able to process your emotions can be one way to start opening the heart because we naturally want to protect against our pain. And if there's a mm. lot of pain sitting there, then we want to keep the heart closed so that we yeah. don't have to feel that. Mm. But getting, just scanning your body, getting aware of what the sensations are, where you feel that the heart becomes more closed, what you experience as um, things or situations or environments where you feel like a bit of an opening in your heart and mm. sort of really like, 
consciously anchoring that feeling in can help to kind of stretch that a bit more like I just had such a good laugh at that thing that I just saw or whatever it is. Mm. It's like, oh, my heart feels really open with that and really bringing your attention to it. And can I expand that feeling a little bit Mm. more or like really let it sit there for a bit of time? And if your heart kind of energetically feels really contracted, then there's like a slow stretching or expansion of that space to be more open. Mm. So then does that's just a few kind of basic things then i mean easier said than done then the second question that you had which was how can you keep your heart open yeah keeping open and also feeling safe with it open feeling safe with it open ir- yeah. irrespective of the circumstances whether it's the loss of love or a loved one or a breakup mm-hmm. but to understand uh, the love within can stay if that makes yeah. sense yeah i think sometimes it is natural for our heart not to be open all the time because Mm. that's quite a vulnerable, exposed space to be in for some people or Mm. in some situations. If you're in, you know, a chaotic or tumultuous or aggressive environment, it's like natural instinct to want to keep your heart protected in those kind of circumstances. So I think there are some environments where it's normal and probably important that the heart Mm. is protected and closed. Um, And with certain people, you know, someone's coming yelling at me on the street. I don't want to keep my heart open to them. It's like, stay out of my space. You know, I'm going to want to have a boundary up. Mm. Um, But with people that I trust, with my friends, with, you know, people that I meet who feel like somewhat safe people, Mm. keeping the heart open in those circumstances, I think, is a practice to feel safe with that. And boundaries are usually a big one where... Um, you know, I I feel safe to keep my heart open because I know that I can protect myself if I need to. Mm. When we don't feel safe generally or don't have healthy boundaries, usually there's going to be a lot of armour around the heart. Mm. And I can give you a little analogy around this if you like. Absolutely, yes. You know, if I feel pretty safe in myself, I might be someone that, you know, maybe leaves my door unlocked during the day or in home at home you know or maybe isn't i'm pretty relaxed in my in my general space my heart feels pretty open i'm you know might leave my door unlocked maybe lock it at night or whatever yeah yeah but i feel generally safe where i am Mm. if i'm someone who um and maybe my heart feels more open yeah most of the time this is this is not a 100 this is how it is all the time but just depends where you live fun little analogy (laughs) or whatever yeah Um, But that's, again, coming back to the environmental thing. If you're in an unsafe, you know, huge crime rate in your neighbourhood, you know, it would be normal for you to keep things locked, right? So that environment is not conducive to an open, safe heart necessarily, Mm. maybe. Um, So then if I'm someone who feels generally unsafe... I might be in a safe neighborhood, but I'm having security cameras. I've got red, you know, alarms, tripwires, things that kind of, I'm hypervigilant. It's like, I want security all around me to make sure that Mm. no one's coming into my space. And so the level of armoring that we have around our heart is Mm. usually relative to how safe we feel within ourselves as well. And one way to increase safety within our own being is to have a deep embodiment of boundaries where we know Mm. that we can protect ourselves so we feel safer to be more open because those boundaries can come in 
when we need them or we know we can get away or whatever it is. Yeah. And people who've been in environments where they have had boundaries transgressed or where they haven't been able to get away or where they've been forced to stay in unsafe situations, um, they'll either have to put walls up mm. to f create some sense of safety or, um, yeah, and, and close the heart down. Yeah. It seems just like um, a traumatic experience will shut down your heart. Well, you won't, yeah, very, you won't. Very, feel very firmly to a point we need to undo a lot of layers to really crack it open again. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned before that the shame is stored in the stomach. Mm -hmm. What would be stored around the chest and heart area or certain emotions there if there is such a thing? Uh, I think a lot of the time around the chest and heart area is grief and sadness, okay. also happiness and joy yeah. um, would, and fear. A lot mm. can be around the chest and the heart area as well. Fear can be throughout the whole body. Yeah. But when, yeah, when I'm doing body work with people, typically in the chest will be fear, grief, sadness, joy, mm. um, love, you know, those yeah. kind of feelings as well that mm. are more related to the heart. Because I had an issue where I was, if I was feeling a deep amount of love for somebody mm -hmm. and my heart would, would open, I would instantly feel loss at the same time. Mm. And it would be intermixed with it to the point it was really confusing like whoa why do i have love and loss at the same time it's like i can't experience one without the other mm. i've been really trying to um, dive deep into that and differentiate the two but um yeah i guess i've got some more work to do <laughs> <laughs> where awesome. do you think that would come from uh there's probably somewhere in there that your associations with love have been associated with loss mm. which is called overcoupling. so it's where okay. one thing gets entangled in with the other so you've mm. got love here and you've got loss weaved in so when one's activated the other can come up and it might work when mm. love's activated first loss comes in maybe when loss is activated love doesn't come in or maybe it does i'm not sure yeah, how not. you experience that <laughs> um but if you've um, had a situation with love where there's also been great loss then the two can be combined together mm. and some people will experience that like with um arousal and shame the two will be mm. coming in together or anger and fear or sadness and guilt or you know like th yeah, there okay. can be depending on our associations of our experiences or our um conditioning or programming mm. or whatever it is that you can get overcoupling with different yeah. experiences or feelings. Wow. And the way to separate those two is against the somatic therapy or there's some things you can really do to help pull those apart? Uh, I think just creating awareness, getting awareness around that first mm. is a really good step. And then trying to spend a little time in one of those experiences mm. for a little bit you know, I'm just going to, can I kind of separate them? I'm going to put loss over here for a moment and just see if I can sit with that feeling of love for 10 seconds or something mm. like that. And then if loss comes back in straight away, it's like, okay, take a break. I'm going to put loss to the side. I'm going to visit that in the moment. Yeah. And I just feel love for a second and see, or 10 seconds or 30 seconds and start to expand your capacity to be with one of those experiences for a little bit longer. Mm. Or you might be curious about the loss and go, okay, I've noticed love is there. I'm going to put that to the side for a second. Mm. What do I feel with the loss that comes up and sit with that for a moment? And that could give an opportunity for the any of the unresolved pain around that loss to be mm. released so that you're kind of letting that go from your being and love comes in as love. Yeah. I did a lot of contemplating on this, the love and loss thing. And... Um, I thought it may be, I had the fear of like, wow, if I'm feeling love and I'm feeling lost, I'm manifesting 
breakup or something to happen. But I realized that my, my father had um, two wives who passed away of cancer. Um, so I was wondering, is that like an ancestral thing? Or is it like a memory thing that I have in my head that, you know what I mean? Because it's quite interesting because I'd imagine that's how he would have felt through a lot of his life, having those two experiences. I mean, quite possibly mm. that we tend to imitate or download, if you will, our yeah. parents' associations and, and feelings around things. So there's the possibility that somewhere in there you've, you've learnt that mm. love means loss is, is... I really want to know um, what your definition of Tantra is because I've heard so many mixed definitions and I'm sort of confused as to exactly what it is. Mm. I was also very confused yeah. <laughs> for like the first few years of exploring Tantra. Like, mm. just, just someone just tell me what, what does it actually yeah. mean? And, you know, there's all these kind of like, it's everything. <laughs> um, so in my understanding of Tantra is that, you know, and I, and I suppose people will, depending on the kind of tantra or where they learn it or whatever their definition of that could possibly be different so mm. i think that's maybe why there are lots of different ways to um, understand it or explain what it is my understanding of tantra is that it is a spiritual practice that teaches us how to connect with god or spirituality or the universe or whatever you want to call it mm. by fully embracing the human experience and so what I, what I mean by that is you might be familiar with other spiritual practices that focus on a transcendental approach where mm. it's like, I'm going to deny myself of my anger, my primal desires, my wants, you know, I'm going to practice non-attachment, all of this stuff like mm. um, resisting these instinctive or innate human desires or experiences to you know, purify myself of being human mm. in a sense. You know, I'm kind of dramatizing a little bit. Um, but I want to purify myself of being human so that I can ascend beyond my human self and connect with God. So that's like a transcendental approach mm. where we're going upwards out of the human experience to something higher than ourselves. Whereas I think Tantra is more of an inward and outward approach where instead of trying to not be human or to purify myself of that, I'm going to go right into the very depths of being human and the full spectrum of that experience mm. and feel that God or the sacred or spirituality is still inextricably interlinked in that experience. And the my humanity is not separate from the divine. It's wow. all part of it. And so that's going deep into my emotions, my desires, my feelings, my shadows, my sexuality. And it's also connecting with others to experience that sense of divinity where I don't necessarily need to search for God out there as a higher power that's beyond me. Mm. But I can see the divinity in you, in that beautiful plant that's sitting there on the desk, that, mm. that God, the universe divinity is interwoven into all of it. So that's kind of where... Um, sexuality is a big part of it as well mm. because it's it's feeling that 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 is a sacred energy that we can explore as well mm. but it's also so much more than that yeah that's amazing good definition mm. the best one I've heard so far oh. <laughs> yeah that really makes a lot of sense um, when it comes to things like sexuality and really integrating the heart and the full sort of spiritual experience or the energy energetic experience 
how can we transfer sex and something that's not just physical, mm-hmm. but into a whole like spiritual experience? Mm. Um, <laughs> Is that too it's, loaded? A, it's a good question. It's a good question. I think that to transfer a sexual experience from being more so purely physical into possibly spiritual or deeper than that Mm. is by exploring the energy that is also beyond the physicality of that act. Mm. So that means that, you know, your sex center would also be connected to your heart Mm. and also be connected to your awareness. And what a lot of people do when they engage sexually, I'm just going to super generalize here because I know it's not relevant for everyone, but a lot of people will experience this sense of sex where um, their hearts may be a bit closed Mm. or possibly not connected at all to that experience. They're focused really on the flesh and friction experience of arousal and kind of motivated by by getting a release of some sort yeah and they may not have their consciousness connected to that experience so that means Mm. where it's like our primal desire is driving the car and behind the steering wheel and then before we know it they've had sex with someone or have got lost to their lust or whatever and then Mm. afterwards the consciousness comes back and they're like oh shit i really shouldn't have done that so that's kind of just an example of how we can kind of fragment or split from ourselves with sexuality Mm. and to make it a more fully embodied spiritual or energetic experience um which can be really hard to work towards that but it's it's having the heart open as Mm. well and being more conscious and aware and really present with yourself and with the other person i mean you can also do that through self-pleasure or masturbation as well mm. um, but you're sort of all of you is here and yeah. on rocking up for the experience not just your genitals yeah yeah that makes sense i think i relate that a lot to um to eating in a sense that like people who sort of rush or wolf their food down yeah. and with the same thing if you're rushing it just for the physical purposes you sort of miss out on the the magic of the the moment and mm-hmm. exactly what it is yeah, um, that's a good com- that's a good kind of yeah. your comparison to make. So, um, archetypes. Archetypes. You speak a lot about them. Um, what exactly are they, and how does one embody a certain archetype? So, archetypes are kind of like um, I mean, you could refer to them as as qualities or yeah. traits or um, collective energies, if you will. Mm. So, um, you know, archetypes were a way of recognizing that all of us have these different expressions of ourself internally, um, but may not have full access to all of them. Mm. So there's so many different archetypes out there, masculine and feminine archetypes and other archetypes um, that are, you know, of of the earth, of the world, of different things. Mm. But some of the primary archetypes that I have worked with um, are like the mother archetype, mm. um, the warrior archetype, the priestess archetype, the lover archetype. Um, there's the inner child archetype. Mm. There's the what's the other one? The queen archetype. Mm. The you know there's there's a lot of them, mm. and you know that's just a few. There's you know I don't even know how many. A lot. Yeah. Um, but each of the archetypes have sort of 
light qualities and shadow qualities to them that you can explore. And a lot of the time people will have an archetype or a, a trait or a characteristic or expression of themselves that's more prevalent. So if you think about people in your life that you know, you might be able to think of some people that are like classic like warrior archetype, like mm. go-getters, saying it how it is, very direct, very, you know, determined and mm. like go, go, go kind of thing or yeah. say what they think and feel or whatever it is or mm. someone who might be classic mother archetype, like super nurturing, loves to cook for people, you know, mm. really soft and loving and compassionate and kind and, you know, someone else who might have a classic inner child archetype which may be like really playful and like oh look at that and oh look at that and you know they yeah. kind of want to explore the world and they're, they're creative and they've got this amazing way of seeing things and mm. they're kind of connected to that real childlike kind of innocence in them yeah. and then there's also the shadow of each of those um but basically exploring the archetypes is a way of um kind of having a bit of a, a different kind of pathway to expanding our sense of wholeness. Mm. So if I'm really strong in a warrior archetype, yep. I might be like a real hard ass or, mm. or something. Um, and I go, go, go. And I might have the tendency to burn myself out or to be a little bit more brash or harsh than maybe mm. I mean to. I could do with a little bit of the lover or the mother archetype to soften me a little bit. So I'm mm. not like we were talking about before in extremes. If you're extreme in one, you need something of the opposite spectrum to bring a bit of balance. Is that in yourself or in a partner? Well, or either both? person could do okay. it. Yeah. Um, but so it's a way of kind of restoring balance and wholeness within by mm. going, which expressions of these might I feel this is my comfort zone, this is what I'm used to. Yeah. And other parts, it's like, oh, I could do with a little bit more of that energy actually mm -hmm. and embodying these different traits or qualities to bring that expression of self out of dormancy into being here. Full expression, yeah. wow. Do, do you work much with um, spirit, whether it's in meditation or with your workshops or anything like that? Uh, I, I, I do, but it's maybe not in the sense, uh, like I used to kind of do a lot of ritual and ceremony and sort of calling on the universe and things yeah. like that and spirit. But now I feel more like a connection to intuition maybe, okay. where that's coming from. I'm not sure mm. if it's my intuition or universal intuition, I don't know. But there's more like listening to those kind of whispers that I feel or hear mm. and I'm not so kind of stuck on trying to define where it comes from and yeah, sort of okay. feels a bit more of an embodied experience very flowy now. yeah, yeah. with the archetypes it just reminded me of you know um, the Maoris would actually do the, the haka mm -hmm. where they would summon the god of war to before they go mm. into war to feel the warrior energy so when you're embodying an archetype is there like can you draw upon certain forces to really pull it through or is that just going too far yeah no absolutely <laughs> yeah. absolutely can yeah and there's there's a lot of different ways or certain deities or gods or goddesses that you can draw upon or if mm. you're you know wanting to connect more to the mother archetype you know you can connect with the mother the earth you know and be mm. spend time in nature and really sort of sit on the ground and like feel the earth and the plants and listen mm. to the wind and that kind of thing or um you can certain music as well yeah. can be really evocative for different 
energies mm. um, or pictures as well. You know, if you've got yeah. a photo that represents the energy that you're wanting to draw more of, yeah. you can also hang out with people that you feel hold the qualities that you're wanting to mm. embody more of and kind of what would, what would it feel like if I borrowed a little bit more of that? True, yeah. um, so if I'm wanting to, you know, soften a bit, I, if I know someone who's super soft and like chilled and relaxed, I would probably hang out with them a little bit more and go, oh, what would it feel like to kind of mimic this a little bit just to see how that feels in my own body? Yeah. Um, so you could make it a very spiritual or um, esoteric kind of experience, mm. but it can also be simplified to just what, you know, day to day life in exploring these different yeah. energies. Have you ever heard of um, Marilyn Monroe using this technique to be more seductive and working with her appeal that she did this yeah do you have you heard oh, the story no, no i haven't there's a story that I've, I've repeated before but i heard this story i don't know if it's true or not but there was a friend of marilyn Monroe, and they're walking on the street together this on an ordinary street and she was distressed normally no one knew it was her they were just covertly walking through the streets and marilyn Monroe turned to her friend and said do you want to see me turn it on she's like what do you mean turn it on it's like turn on the marilyn Monroe, the act the charm she's like, okay go for it so she just centered herself and started walking differently and embodying this energy. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, people started noticing her. Oh my God, that's her. Cars would slow down and peak. And then all of a sudden there was like crowds forming because they recognized it was her. And she's like, what did you do? And she's like, I tune into the energy of Venus, mm. which is the feminine, massive powerhouse planet, which is like, you said the mother archetype is mother earth, but the feminine archetype is Venus, the mm -hmm. feminine planet. And she's like, she pulls upon the energy and just steps into it. And it just tramps, it just transforms her, mm. which is an amazing story. So, that don't is know if it's real or not, but I hope it is. It yeah, I mean, I've played around with stuff like that have you? before. And I know Are you tuning into have, Venus? Well, not, not tuning into <laughs> Venus like that, but different kind of yeah. esoteric or universal okay. or um, like goddesses and things yeah. like that. Which was, what, what was the one you're drawn to or one of? I think for me, one of the hardest, like one of the most confronting or edgy archetypes to work with was the warrior archetype. Okay. Um, and so I spent some time exploring what it would be like to tune into the energy of Kali, which is the, the deity that's in, basically. In hey? She's the yeah, one that yeah. cuts the heads off, yeah. Yeah, so mm. she's pretty badass. Yeah. But it's like death of the ego and destruction mm. because if for a loving intent behind that like it, a rebirth you know. cycle sort of like yeah creation preservation and destruction makes way for more creation yeah, yeah. and just yeah like not um you know being prepared to ruffle the feathers and just mm. like slice through illusion yeah. and things like that so beautiful yeah definitely i spent some time in india as well and have oh, explored different deity work and with my yeah. previous teacher as well, Chantelle Raven, who does a lot of that work too. So yeah. um, I have explored a lot of that, but I guess it's sort of gone on ways of this where it's like going into it quite deeply for a few yeah. years. It then feels like I haven't necessarily needed to mm. continue doing that. It kind of feels like I've kind of got it. death and rebirth cycles. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah. So yeah. was there a period in your life where you just needed to have sort of breaks in the certain things down or reinvent yourself or step out as a new version of yourself massively yeah yeah it's happened a lot of times okay. wow. <laughs> and sometimes i think like 
this is Georgia. And then I realized that it's just another false idea of who I think I want to wow. be. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. So um, during that Kali phase of your life, did you find that really helped you tuning into the energy and really studying her or knowing about her and just say, okay, I can embody this to get through and remove these cords, so to speak, of my old self? Yeah, definitely. Mm, yeah, okay. I think it was really helpful. And, you know, a lot of what we do in working or playing or exploring with energetics is through intention. So mm. whether that's to a deity or whether that's something else, I think intention is the strongest driving force to yeah. access those different things. Mm. Yeah. I feel like you've got some really cool stories, <laughs> which we probably won't go into, but... <laughs> Save that for another time. Yeah. Okay. Um, things like shyness, for example... Um, or social anxiety. Mm. Would you have any ideas as to what would be causing that and ways to move through it? Or have we already touched on that in regard to shame? Yeah, I think it could be related to shame. I also think that that can be related to our attachment as well. Mm. Um, because, you know, if I'm in a group of people or if I'm in connection with anyone, it's going to activate my attachment patterning. Mm. And if I don't feel confident or safe or secure to be myself, then chances are I'm going to feel shy or anxious around mm. other people. And a lot of the time underneath that, I think is a fear of rejection, okay. where shyness is kind of like the holding back of who I am, because if I show it, then I may possibly be, I, I might get rejected. And some people mm. are quite shy at the start, and then it takes them a little while where it's like, okay, yeah, I can be myself here. And they kind of, they they'll come out of their shell, mm. the safer that they feel knowing that they're being accepted and, okay. you know, included. And with social anxiety as well, I think that working with the fear of rejection, um, as well as being able to have healthy boundaries can really help with that experience of anxiety. Beautiful. Mm. Another question for you. Um, are there any ways we can work on being more aware of what is our intuition telling us we shouldn't be somewhere versus, oh, this is shyness or social anxiety. And yeah. where do we draw that line? Because sometimes I feel anxious in certain circles, but I feel totally fine doing the same thing in other circles. I'm like, is that, am I shy or am I just not meant to be where I was, if that makes sense? Mm. Do you have any experiences with that? Like really fine tuning that intuition and knowing? Well, I've had experiences of that where if I'm, um, you know, hanging out with my friends, people that I know, mm. feeling more confident because I feel safer to be myself. Um, or if I feel, you know, if I'm facilitating a workshop or I'm helping with something, it's kind mm. of like I have my role in that space. So I feel more confident yeah. uh, to, to be there um, and in control in a sense. Whereas if I go, you know, and I've, I've experienced this a lot, if I go hang out with my partner's friends, I don't know anyone, it's an unfamiliar environment, I don't have my usual role that feels comfortable for me, mm. then I have experienced social anxiety in those environments and it's feeling out of control or unfamiliar or there's I have to re-navigate how I relate to people in a way that I'm not used to. So yeah. in my experience of it, um, there has been some stuff for me to look at when I've experienced social anxiety mm. and I think that generally speaking for others, you know, to learn where that line is between what's your intuition telling you this environment is not right for me and I actually need to go versus this is an anxiety and there's actually something deeper than that playing out. I think that takes mm. getting to know yourself yeah. and getting really curious about what's underneath this and knowing yourself well enough to go, nah, I definitely, I just need to go home because yeah. this isn't right versus... 
hmm, there's a bit of a charge or a trigger here. Mm. That's something that I can look at further so that I feel safer to be in different social environments. Beautiful. Awesome. Um, this question I've been dying to ask you too. I saw your video on Instagram about it. But supporting friends or family members through a toxic relationship or an abusive relationship and obviously knowing our boundaries there and also playing it safe. Because I've had this experience with a lot of friends of mine, even family members, where mm-hmm. I may have overstepped and I didn't realize, I'm like, oh, okay, I really shouldn't have said that. But mm-hmm. yeah, how do we toe that line and really how do we help someone in that situation? Oh, it's really tough. It's really hard because, you know, sometimes they need someone to speak out and go, mm hey, I've noticed that, you know, you're not yourself, you, you seem, you know, this doesn't seem healthy for you. I think, I think one, of the, one of the ways that creates a bridge to having a conversation with someone in a relationship where you're concerned for their health mm. is actually by asking them if they're open to um, you sharing something that you've noticed. Mm. So rather than coming in and going, hey, what are you doing with this person? This is not good for you. Usually that can put someone on the defense. Whereas if you go, hey, I've I've had some concerns. I'm feeling a little bit worried about something that I've noticed with you. Are you open to me sharing with you what that is? Once they say yes, they feel like they've given permission. They're Mm. going to be more receptive to it. And they feel like they're now part of that conversation rather than you kind of yeah imposing your opinions onto them so usually i find asking permission for feedback can be Mm. a gateway in to being more heard on that um and then also you know moving through your own stuff around as well can help you to communicate it more clearly rather than sort of shaming or judging them for that because then Mm. that also might put them on the defense but i've known people who you know they've heard it 20 times or 30 times, 40 times from their family members, Mm. you've got to leave this relationship, this is not good for you, and they can't hear it until they choose that for themselves. Mm. Um, So it is a very difficult line to walk between bringing that to their awareness, expressing your concern as a loved one, but also realizing that that they're going to make that choice when and if they they do. Mm. Um, And, you know, I've, (laughs) I've experienced people saying, do you know, like i actually don't think this is good for me and it's like i've been telling you that for three years you know but they're just it's kind of blind to it so it is a really difficult one to approach Mm. um and hard for me to give a one-size-fits-all way to do that but i think that there is value in you know expressing to someone your concerns Mm. because you love them that's true uh and whether or not they act on that straight away Ideally, it would plant a little seed there mm. um, where you can't force their hand on something, but you can kind of keep, yeah. you know, letting them know what you're seeing and not everyone's going to want to hear that either because then they've got to confront, you know, why mm. they're in that relationship or whatever it is. And sometimes hearing it or saying it out loud makes it more real. Than what exactly, it is. yeah. And I think we all have like cognitive blind spots. We just don't notice or just dull out over time. Mm-hmm. Um, but things like asserting your boundaries or having healthy confrontation. How could you go about that for someone who has like anxiety thinking about putting up a boundary or expressing themselves in that way? Mm-hmm. In related in relation to the last question or is um, this a new point? It's a new point. Okay. They're kind of intertwined, but yeah, healthy confrontation. Healthy confrontation. I mean, I think that that's something that 
you gradually feel safer in with practice and over yeah. time it can be really hard to f- for people to find their voice in yeah. confrontation or to say what they're actually feeling if there's fear there or they're feeling unsure um but you know practicing that helps to like like building a muscle it's like the more you do it it's like oh okay i am okay and this is actually safe for me to have these conversations or to express boundaries Mm. um i think it could be good to get support around that or to have some friends around you that can you can kind of debrief around here's what i want to have a conversation around do you have any feedback Mm. for me you know whether that's with the person that you're confronting or getting some kind of advice for confronting someone else um and then it's also good to look at what actually comes up for you because there's a lot that can be done to process those fears and anxieties which can make you feel safer to have that confrontation if you've Mm. got some old kind of unresolved fear there that when you go to confront someone or to set a boundary you're now not a 35-year-old man. You've just regressed back into a, a six-year-old boy who is speaking to dad, you know, in the unconscious yeah, projection. Yeah. There's a lot that you can do to resolve those prior dynamics that will then shift you into present-time awareness so that mm. when you're having that conversation or setting your boundary, you're here as your adult self rather than the inner child that's terrified of, you know, the consequences mm. of what might happen. So, um, yeah, that would be my advice is yeah, to, no, that's, that's really to cool. do some healing work on what comes up in mm. anticipation of that. Yeah, because I get that as well sometimes. I have to confront somebody, whether it's a friend or family, in something that may offend them. Or uh-huh. I get this sense of guilt of, like, oh, how will they react? But it's not really, that's not my work in a sense. But I can feel like a six-year-old kid again and I'm, until I announce it and then I'm like, oh, I start feeling better in, mm. in the process. But it's quite interesting. Yeah. Um, when it comes to sex and energy exchange, do you think that um, our culture has an unhealthy idea of what sex is and <laughs> things like one night stands and that, and that nature? Like, are they actually dangerous energetically or things of that nature? Or what, what do you mean dangerous? When it comes to like an energetic exchange, I heard that when you're intimate with somebody, their energy and your energy is flowing through each other, and mm-hmm. it, could, it can stick to you, or it can you become like the people that you are intimate with mm-hmm. and things like one night stands are they actually toxic for our energetic system mm. or is it more so depending on situations i think it depends on the situation and mm. each individual yeah so for some people you know they might genuinely feel totally fine with a one night stand um for other people it brings up you know a lot of shame or guilt or Mm. grief or you know whatever feelings come up with that if they don't feel like they've fully honored themselves in that decision Mm. so it might be you know something that they they maybe come to regret afterwards or uh yeah i think it totally depends on each person each person okay yeah but is is it true though that during sex energy does transfer through both individuals is that something that does happen or is that... I think it depends on Are there on ways your... to stop that or like, mm. I don't know how, how this actually works. I've just heard of these things on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> Good old Instagram. Yeah. I think it depends on your level of openness. Mm. So, for example, if I'm, if I'm making love with my partner mm. 
mm. and my heart's open and his heart's open, then there's going to be a circulation of energy okay. through our hearts, our sex centers, and there's there's a beautiful merging that happens with that where we're mm. very energetically connected and there is a genuine exchange that's happening. Yeah. If I go off and have a one night stand, my heart's closed and I'm just engaging with my sex mm. and it's just flesh and friction based and okay. I'm not energetically open to that person, then the amount of energy exchange or merging or connection mm. that's happening in that is going to be very, very different yeah. to what would be if I'm my partner and I are energetically open to each yeah. other emotionally, energetically and sexually. But in terms of, you know, if you go back to the one night stand situation, mm. typically speaking, because a woman's body or a man's body, if he is receiving penetration mm. or whoever's body, um, the one who is being penetrated, mm. usually they are the one that are receiving more of the other person's energy because mm. it's going into them. And if okay. someone... You know, I guess with some of the tantric uh, theories or prin principles as well, it's yeah. like when if someone ejaculates inside as well, mm. then whoever is receiving the ejaculate is going to be receiving more of that person's energy mm. and the other person might not actually take on that much. Okay. Um, so that is just one way of, okay. of viewing it. Yeah. Mm. Do you have any practices or techniques to... Keep your energy safe if you're going to a shopping center or going to certain areas and you may notice that things get sort of stuck to you. Mm. Well, how do we sort of release energy that's not ours or old energy that long, no longer serves us? Mm. Uh, there's lots of different things that you can do. I think part of it is um, energetic boundaries. Yeah. Like if, you know, and, and that comes with boundary work and embodying that, you know, you're not taking on stuff from your surroundings and you don't mm. have to and it's not your job to either yeah. it's sort of energetically you're more boundaried from yeah. the environment around you whereas some people don't really have strong boundaries generally speaking and anything's kind of coming in and coming mm. out and they feel like they maybe don't have much control over it and get very impacted by what's going on around them yeah. um so things that you can do um are like I love like freshwater showers, like mm. getting your head wet, cleansing the whole body or jumping in the ocean or in a pool or in a body of water is usually quite a cleansing practice mm. energetically. Then there's things like sage or incense or even yeah. in having intention to, you know, if, if you feel like, oh, I've just, I've taken something on from my environment or yeah. I feel like something's kind of sticking to me. It's like, where is it? See if you can identify what the sensation is. Yeah. Maybe you feel like, oh, this heaviness, real heaviness here. And you might just kind of like have an intention just to kind of like flick, like That's wipe cool. it or swish it or flick it away. Yeah. Um, or you could, you know, again, take a shower and cleanse that away or just, you know, have that intention within yourself of like, this is not mine. I'm, mm. I'm giving it back. And, you know, intention is a really strong way that you can use anything yeah. at all to sort of cleanse yourself energetically mm. of things. And then some people swear by crystals or certain essential oils or different things like that that can be yeah. cleansing tools so it really depends on yeah you've got a lot of knowledge and a lot of strategies <laughs> <laughs> can i add something to that last one yeah of course i think that another really useful tool for kind of decompressing or resetting energetically is actually music and dance as well mm. kind of just like shaking moving the body 
singing, listening to music and just having that intention to sort of let go of the day or the space you were in and sort of resetting and stepping back into yourself. Yeah, mm. I like that one. Yeah, that definitely works for me. Yeah. Um, now, do you, have you actually worked with couples as well on intimacy issues with them and things of that nature? Yep. Are you seeing any things or common themes that are coming between men and women? Like any ideas or beliefs or things of that nature that really, are, yeah. That's a massive question. Do you, things that are coming between men and women as genders generally, or do you mean in couples? Um, I would probably say both. Just like any ideas or belief systems or things that are really blocking men and women to, uh, and their sacred union or just getting along as they, as they should, in a sense. Oh, where, where to start with that one? I actually did um, a couple of weekends um, with the school that I taught for before, which mm. was the art of loving men and the art of loving women. And that was a full weekend around understanding the innate differences between men and women and mm. where the frustrations can come in because of that misunderstanding of the other. So I think that there are, you know, a lot of maybe assumptions or misunderstandings that we can have of the opposite sex and the way naturally that they function or feel. Mm. And you could take this further away from it just being about men and women and gender and about masculine and feminine energy or yin and yang energy and how different those two are and someone who's more polarized in one of those will find it harder to understand the mm. other um, until they've sort of embodied that in themselves or get that understanding themselves. Um, but I think there are a lot of misunderstandings in terms of um, beliefs and things like that. I think if you distill it down, a lot of it can be the societal roles or ideas that we have about each other and what each other mm. should be doing in relationship. And the other thing is that I think there's a lot of issues around, you know, our experiences of men or women and then projecting that onto the partner where it's like if I've had a negative experience with a man, I'm now going to lump all men into that and go, well, all men are like this. Mm. And, you know, a man might do the same or we could do it about whatever gender. It doesn't really matter. But yeah. a lot of the time it's like all women are like this. Um, and our very first imprints come from our mum and dad. So with couples, what happens a lot is one of them is projecting mummy onto the other and their inner child's wanting mummy to love them in all the ways that they didn't, but mm. they're no longer relating adult to adult. They're now relating from unconscious inner child to mother projection. Mm. And the other way around as well, the other is often projecting daddy onto the other and relating from unconscious inner child to dad. Mm. And all of those associations and programming experiences and attachment stuff gets projected onto the other person mm. or replayed in relationship. And a lot of people don't realize how much their relationships with their opposite sex parent or same sex parent actually influences the adult relationships and the repetition of those patterns. Mm. Wow. That's a big one. <laughs> it is a big one. If you're given the opportunity to speak to a billion people or Oof. implant an idea into the, into the collective mm -hmm. consciousness, what would that idea or message be? Gosh, there would be so much that I'd want to say. It's such a big question. I feel like this kind of like 
this pressure of like what would be the most impactful message to bring across to that many people and I think that part of that message would be that I feel as though you know that each individual is responsible for their part in reconnecting to themselves and their hearts and to doing the inner work required to amplify that ripple effect and that wave out to really making a change in this world and I think that a lot of people get so caught up in these materialistic things or what others are or aren't doing or try to control everyone and everything around them and that the biggest impact anyone I think can have in their own life is actually by going within and letting go of trying to get control over everything connecting to themselves in their own heart and if we all did that like the world would massively change but there's so much that we have no control over and can exhaust ourselves trying to grasp onto or trying to control but it you know by being here and connecting to self and coming home to who we actually are mm. is what the world massively needs. Um, and it's a game changer in that sense, the ripple effect out that, you know, mm. if, if you're connected to your own heart, you can touch so many other hearts and it just keeps amplifying. But yeah, we need each individual to do the inner work and to be brave enough to confront themselves and to love, you know, start loving or accepting who they are to spark that, that change um, of how we engage in the world and how we treat each other and it all starts from within. Mm. That would probably be one thing. Beautiful. That's amazing. <laughs> um, and this is going to be my last question now. Okay. Um, this is more simpler though. What is the best gift a man can give to a woman? And what do you think is that from your experience that women actually want? in relationships or just in mm. life in general? I think that women really want their heart to be deeply felt, held, seen and heard. And I think they yearn for the full presence of a man that's not trying to change her, fix her, come up with solutions, but deeply feels her. Mm. And I think that a lot of women are longing for a lot more emotional intimacy than they're getting. Uh, and even, you know, some people, a lot of women will try to seek, and, and men, anyone, try to seek emotional intimacy through sex, but it's not really how that cup within gets filled. So... Did you ask me what advice would I give to men to, for women? No, I asked them um, what's the best gift a man can give to a woman. Yeah, I think um, it would be presence mm. um, and the depth and vulnerability of his own heart. Mm, beautiful. And reversing that, mm -hmm. what's the best gift a woman can give to a man and what do you think it is that men really want and yearn for 
in your experience that is? Uh, in my experience working with people around this, I think men really want and yearn for uh, to be trusted. Um, and, you know, that's trusting, you know, not being micromanaged or mm. emasculated by a woman, but trusted that he's got it and that he's got her so mm. that she feels safe enough to open to him. Um, and to to be acknowledged, you know, like to, to hear I'm proud of you. Thank you so much for mm. being you. Thank you for what you do. Thanks for all the little things that I notice, like taking the bins out and providing and go mm. to work and doing all these things that I think can be taken for granted a lot. And men give and do and create and build so much. And I think that it's almost seen as this like, yeah, well, you're a man, so you have to do that. And I don't think men get enough acknowledgement in mm. their relationships for what they actually contribute because it's seen as, well, you should just automatically do that. Yeah. Mm. I love those answers. Amazing. Just one last one. What, what, is it, what is it you think that love really is besides just a feeling or an emotion? Besides a feeling or an emotion? Yeah. That's a really good question. Mm. Uh, I think love is an experience of the heart that is like its own unique, beautiful energy or expression mm. in itself. Um, and yeah, I'm not really sure how else to define it, but I think mm. it's what we're all looking for. Yeah. It's more so it has to be experienced and defined, I suppose, because it's very hard yeah. to define. The very tough question. So your answer yeah. is beautiful, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> that is um, everything. Thank you Amazing. so very much. Yeah. Thank you for the awesome.